0: Uh, Welcome to The Solution. This is an AA speaker series meeting in which we discuss the 12 steps of the program of recovery. Uh, For 12 weeks, we have a speaker sharing their experience, strength, and hope of the AA 12 steps. Uh, Our speaker for the series is Mike Chase. Can I get a warm welcome for him? is the first week uh, of the series. Um, I have never met Mike uh, before tonight, so I'm looking forward to hear what he has to say. So I give you Mike Chase. Thanks. Hi. Hi. I can probably stand. Um, and I'm probably going to loosen this tie because I put on a lot of weight. And thanks for the holidays for that, right? But if you see any, you see my sponsor telling me I had a tie when we started at least... Um, <laughs> It's gonna be interesting to see what I say tonight because I really have no idea what I'm gonna say. I have a brief idea what I'm gonna talk about, the first step. Um, which gives me a lot of leeway to talk about because there's like fifty-eight pages in the book plus the doctor's opinion, the forwards that relate specifically on and off to the first step, which is I was powerless over alcohol. Um, little induction about myself. My home group is the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group. Uh, it's a fundamental big book study. We uh, read the book page by page, we talk about the sentences, we see how the book works upon itself to bring us to a conclusion of a spiritual awakening at the so, Um You're probably going to see me bouncing in and out of the big book, my experience, um, and trying to relate it to what I've learned in the big book. The um, forward to the first edition starts out with this, 100 men and women who have recovered from the hopeless state of mind and body. That was definitely me before I got into the program of action found in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this part here, this is my favorite line, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. I'm going to be jumping back in and out of the book to back up things that I say because my story's got some great information to it, but it needs to be backed up with some fact and information. Um, My drinking wasn't always a major problem in my life was a solution for a lot of years. It, was, it, was the, uh, it wasn't my main reason for socializing. It allowed me to you know, to lubricate a little bit. You know, I, I was going to go out and go dancing and go hang out with people and do some drinking. It wasn't always, let's go out and see how effed up I can get or you know, how let's get totally drunk off my butt. But uh, eventually it did start that way. Um, I was born in Minnesota in a really good, loving family. There was really no major turmoils, no big emotional setbacks. My father died when I was young. I handled that pretty good, I guess. Um, actually, I got really drunk about a month afterwards, so I guess I didn't p- handle it too well. But that's not really why I'm alcoholic. We'll get into that so hopefully later. Um, I started drinking socially when I was six years old. If you guys were here last week, you had an opportunity to hear a little bit about my, my drinking path. We're going to concentrate on the first step of it today. Um, I did it because I liked it. I liked the flavor of it. I liked the little feeling it gave me. And for a lot of years, it really didn't give me any problems. You know, from six to nine years old, I was a good social drinker. <laughs> <laughs> no car payments, no bills, no... Um, it was, I was thinking this the other day. Um, my father died when I was eight years old, and I was in the Cub Scout's. And uh, I, I wasn't born to be a cheat, a lie, a manipulator. I was I was a good Christian kid. I went to church school, I went to nursery school, um, but I was in. I remember this. I was in Cub Scouts, and you had to do like to get badges and stuff like that. And I found that if I just forged my mom's signature in the little book and took it to the lady, she would like give me my badges. And one day she came up to me and said, This doesn't look like your mom's signature. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I had the audacity to say, well, you know, my dad died recently and my mom's been really shook up, so she hasn't been herself. And that's coming from a nine- and eight-year-old kid. Wow. So there was something going on already earlier on in my life, which isn't why I'm alcoholic, but that gave me some really good reasons why I should probably, you know, why drinking was going to be a solution for me. Um, spiritual experience is what I got from the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Early on, alcohol gave me that spiritual experience. You know, It took me from a place of uncomfortability, a place of not feeling right with everybody, and just allowed me to fit in and be part of, which was really great for me. I was the neighborhood kid that was always getting in trouble, usually by my own mouth, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, or doing something, getting caught doing something. So when I discovered the fact that if I got drunk, all my fears went away, so the first time I really got drunk, I was nine years old. Um, up to that point, it was just social drinking little little sips here and get dizzy and go home and go, or go upstairs and go to sleep. But we were in this this, this house, and this is the house where we all hung out and would meet before we went out and vandalize the neighborhood <laughs> and um, plot plot the night's adventure and uh, I had not yet gotten a snuggy or a you know got stuffed in a snowbank or gotten uh, reprimanded for my behavior, and uh, we opened up, and I saw this bottle of vodka in this dishwasher, you know, and I pulled it up, and this is my spiritual experience, you know, I was fearful of all these guys, you know, this was this was this herd of hooligans, well, rich little white kids, you know, who can't really be hooligans, <laughs> <laughs> upper classy dine Minnesota, you know, everybody, it was a really wealthy neighborhood, but we were like hooligans, we thought, and... Um, <laughs> Seriously, I was the guy that, that was always getting picked on, but then again, I always incurred my own wrath, which I found out <laughs> later. But I pulled that vodka out, and I'm looking, I'm holding just you know like this, and everybody's eyes just lit up, and I became the center of attention that moment. It was just, for some reason, it just everyone just wasn't gonna go get me, so I, I took a chug off that thing, you know, just little, swallowed it down. And everybody's just like, oh, my God, he did that, you know? And I offered, and they're like, no, and I took another chug. I ended up drinking most of that night and getting really sick at the end of the night. But that night was magic for me, you know? Alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. We hear that all the time. But that doesn't mean I'm alcoholic. I talk to non-alcoholics who have similar experiences. You know, they go to their first date, and they take a pop off a of beer, the next thing, and they're six feet tall, and they're, they're going around normal. And, and they, they can drink reasonably and responsibly, you know? I was drinking irresponsibly by age ten. Every time I drank, I drank to excess. It was causing me to want to do things that I, caused me to do things that I normally wouldn't do. Um, I was plotting how to get in other people's house, how to get their alcohol and stuff like that. And you know, I, when I drank, I drank more than everybody else. And um, wasn't really full-blown alcoholic at that time. It's you know, ten, eleven. That's sort of hard to be full-blown. Um, I was drinking on the weekends. But it was my solution. And you know, you hear in Bill's story when he talks about the first time he drank, you know, he was at that party, and immediately he just found his solution. Mm-hmm. Every time I was mm-hmm. in a situ- situation of difficulty, I went to the alcohol, and also I got some drugs in my story. Um, for some reason, we do a lot of drugs when we drink, or at least I did. Um, which, all the reason I did drugs is so I could drink more, because I, I would pass out and I would get sick and throw up, you know. But I never understood why I drank more than anybody else. We'd be going, you know, before the football game or something, someone would just grab a beer, and they're sneaking out of the house with a beer. I'm just like, are you serious, you know? I'm getting into the liquor cabinet, stealing a little bit of every booze they have so I can have this jug. For some reason, I kept planning more than everybody else needed, you know, this, this concept that enough, enough wasn't ever going to be enough for me. Um, Alcohol started being problems about age 14, 15, 16. Um, I had more access. I, I had more freedom. Uh, I had some, my parents were watching over me a little bit, but I was able to get away with a lot. I was raised in a, a Brady Bunch family. My mom had remarried to a, a guy down the street who had three kids, so we had six kids. So the house was really, really in an uproar most of the time. So I was actually able to get away with a lot of stuff I was doing. Um, wasn 't drinking at school, um, it was basically the weekend thing. It, my alcoholism didn't really kick off until probably college. you know no adult supervision. Um, my drinking started to as Bill's story would talk about, my drinking proportions started to increase. I made it three classes in college um, the whole year I was there. I remember the, I remember um, <laughs> discovering disco and discount drinks and uh, <laughs> It was amazing. It was fun. Alcohol was so working for me, you know. Um, but I would I would throw up a lot. You know, that's always fun to be around somebody's throwing up. Um, pass out. Uh, hit on the wrong people. Um, dance, you know. It, it, my and I would wake up or come to, I guess, the next day and say, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to drink that again or I'm... I'm I'm, I'm I, I, oh, the fear of like, oh, shh, did I do that? You know, the the fear and remorse of the night over, and that started becoming more and more prevalent. Um, so I, I ended up getting asked to leave college, and I got a job working at a biker bar, and which is a great place for an aspiring alcoholic because they they really know how to drink. And I also discovered cocaine, which allowed me to drink a lot more. See, I was getting that phenomenon of craving slowly kicking in after I had like five or six shots of tequila, the phenomenon would kick in for me, and next thing you know, it's 12 shots, 14 shots, and I'm passed out. Ah. The cocaine allowed me to go 13, 14, 20, 25, but just continually drinking. You know, I didn't, I would wake up in the morning and have to want to get some more booze because I was just like, you know, I didn't understand this whole concept. I, I knew my life was having problems. I knew that my drinking was, with the proportions were getting out of control. Um, but I wasn't connecting the dots, that it was the drinking. I, I, I thought it was, you know, my sexuality issues. I thought it was the fact that I didn't have a good enough job or I just wasn't comfortable with myself, you know. Um, I went to uh, get a job in uh, downtown Minneapolis in a in a, a dance in a punk rock bar. I went from, <laughs> went from uh, bikers to punkers. And uh, the drinking and the drugs started to increase, increase a lot. There, I got into the business of selling the cocaine to support my drinking habit. Uh-huh. And for about three, four years of my life, all it was around, all it revolved was going out and drinking. It never occurred to me that I probably shouldn't go out and drink. I didn't have to be responsible to get a job. I remember thinking um, that perhaps my drinking was a little unusual. I had a DWI that was sort of a, a warning sign for me, but I didn't pay attention to it. Um, I just didn't understand this whole concept that I shouldn't be drinking. I thought my life was normal. This everybody I hung out with was as big a drinker as me or as big a drug user as me. I was just having I was having fun, you know, the consequences weren't adding up for me. I wasn't really getting too many problems. I had parents that enabled me. I had a job that allowed me you know, to drink beyond my, my wildest dreams, whatever I wanted to, bartending, selling drugs and stuff like that. And I recall my parents had gone to Europe. And this is where I started dealing with my, my true alcoholism and drug addiction. Um, they had gone, gone on vacation, and they had left me some checking accounts and some charge cards, you know, in case of an emergency. And up to this point, I wasn't, I, my mom had bought me a house so I wouldn't have to worry So I guess so she could keep an eye on me. Well, they went to Europe, and at that time I had stopped paying rent, or I had stopped paying rent at the house for my mom for like six months. Mm -hmm. Um, I hadn't paid the water bill, hadn't paid the sewer bill, hadn't paid the electric bill, the gas bill. So my house was basically shut down cold and lonely, and my parents went to Europe and they left me their house, you know. And I didn't see any problem in that, you know. For me, my alcoholism was this sneaky, conniving thing that snuck up on me. I had lots of behaviors and lots of situations that was, that was sneaking into my life. But I never was stopped and said, listen, you have a problem. You, something's wrong here. I just thought this is the way life was for me. Um, growing up, my heroes were always like uh, Dean Martin, uh, the Rat Pack, uh, movies where there, there's heavy drinking and cocktail parties and you know this and my, my family was very sociable and I just thought I was really sociable i didn't think i was an alcoholic i just thought i was too friendly and um, so my parents are going to europe i have no job i'm selling the drugs i'm working in bars occasionally um, i'm realizing that my life sucks. I don't have any really friends. I'm going to these parties, you know, and and as soon as I deliver what they want, they're just sort of like, okay, you can go now, you know? Sort of like Bill W., you know, that he talks about being the lone wolf. Uh, The the remonstrances of my friends are sort of becoming... I'm I'm not hanging out with people. The only time anybody wants to hang out with me is because of something I have or something I can give them. So I'm really getting not too happy with this lifestyle. So I I say to myself... um, I'm not going to drink as much tonight because what's happening is I'm going out and I'm going to give myself a couple shots Mm -hmm. of tequila, try to sell my wares through the night, and be home by 10 o'clock so I can pay my supplier so I can get some more to keep this lifestyle going. Well, I get into the bar. I have my two shots of tequila. I've completely forgotten the fact that I was limiting myself, right? Next thing you know, it's 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock the next morning. My product's all up my nose and nobody else's pocket. I don't have any money. I'm... uh, Drinking myself into this oblivion, and I'm trying to control it without any success. I'm seeing that my behavior isn't what it's supposed to be. So one night I called Cocaine Anonymous for some help, and they put me on hold. And I got really dist- and I got distracted in like 30 seconds, and went back and started you know just drank myself to oblivion that night. Um, while my parents were away, I ended up stealing a lot of money from them. So when they came home, I had I had no choice, you know. I had some sol- I had three solutions. I actually stole twelve thousand dollars from them and um, I had three choices: one was to steal a lot more money and go to California and never see them again. We have such great <laughs> ideas when we 're drinking. The other one was to commit suicide um, and if I, in the past, I would get drunk and I would uh, want to kill myself and Actually, I'd get drunk, and I'd I'd hit on the wrong guy and want to kill myself for hitting on the wrong guy. And um, through the shame, guilt, and remorse that was coming through. So I would would start drinking, plotting to kill myself, you know? And uh, I got the razor blades out. I've got some Barry Manilow music. I've got something going on. (laughs) Um, I'm writing down my suicide note, you know, all sad. Woe is me. And... um, I mix myself a couple strong drinks. Well, actually, I just take some ice and bring the bottle into the car and a joint and whatever I'm going to do when I start to sit, put on the drink. You know, you can't kill yourself without having a couple drinks. And I'm <laughs> <laughs> The dangest thing, every time I went to go kill myself when I would start drinking, after about two drinks, that whole concept of drinking would just sort of like, go out the window and I'd like turn the car off, put the razor blades away, put the pills back in the bottle, put the shotgun back in, you know, whatever. I, I tried it a lot. It never successfully worked for me. Um, I find out later that that's that thing, you know, they call that phenomenon of craving that kicks into alcoholics after they've had a couple of drinks and they've, they've reached that point. So I guess it's really lucky I'm alcoholic because I still would have gotten drunk and done stupid things, but phenomenon of craving would not have kicked in to allow me to have the ability to to not kill myself. though, My solution was always get really drunk or kill myself. Two choices. Um, when I'm working with guys, I like to talk a little bit about that to show how alcohol worked for me and how alcoholism worked for me. The fact that those situations that I didn't want, that was going to kill myself, that alcoholism saved my life. So when I went into rehab after... Oh, by the way, my parents came home, $12,000 a day. They were so excited. So I, my decision was: kill myself. That wasn't going to work. Steal more money. Go to California. That wasn't going to work. Or tell them I'm an alcoholic, which I didn't have the faintest idea what an alcoholic was. I sort of knew for sure that I was a cocaine addict, and um are <laughs> blind to it, you know. Just blind. I was. I didn't because drinking was my solution. So they came home and I told them what was going on. I'm an addict, alcoholic, and I need help. And they got really excited and. I ended up going to Hazleton. Um, went to Hazleton, and the thing about Hazleton is I really didn't learn much what it was to be alcoholic, honestly, you know? I learned about my inner child. I learned about some dysfunctional family attitudes I had going on in my life. I, I learned a lot about, um, I had a white light experience, a serious, an honest-to-God white light experience in, in Hazleton. So the rest of these pamphlets, they're you know, they had the, 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 the first step packet, the second step packet, the third step packet, and there wasn't much meat and potatoes of what it was to be an alcoholic. Um, so I had this white light experience the second night in Hazleton, you know? And I'm supposed to, which my life changed, you know? I hadn't been connected to God. What happened was, you know, I started out as a Christian, little kid, the drinking sort of put God off the burner. I'm uh, praying to God. I mean, you can't kill yourself without praying to God first, so I'm doing that a lot. Um, <laughs> And then drinking, um,
1: so I'm in Hazelton. I
0: hear that it's about this AA stuff. I, I don't have the faintest idea what this is really going. I had some ideas what AA was. I do, basically knew the treatment: is you went, got locked away for 27 days, and you came back and you never went to any parties. So I was really excited about this um, because alcohol was still always going to be my solution. I didn't understand what it was that what, why I was doing that. So I had the white light experience while in Hazelton. Um, I had been a lying, cheating, stealing, low-life, self-centered, inconsiderate, self-serving kind of guy. And all of a sudden, one night through prayer, my life shifted. I, I got this new relationship with God. I became Captain Recovery, AA. I didn't have the finished idea what that was. Hazleton was amazing. Uh, we're doing pamphlets on the first step packet. I was dyslexic, so they offered me a, a uh, intern to dictate my step work, which is really weird. Um, having some girl just dictating my... So What did you drink? How much did you spend? And I remember filling out some forms about how much I used to spend, you know, how much I used to drink. And for me, that didn't make too much sense because there was a lot of people who, who drank and spent as much as me, but they were getting on with their lives normally. You know. For some reason, when I picked up, I just couldn't stop, and everybody else... and I, I was hanging out with people who, who drank and partied like me, but come 1 o'clock, they would say, i got to go home, and they could get up and leave. And I'm just going. I just got another bottle. Or I got something coming and delivered, and there I am, you know, alone for the next four hours drinking myself. And it wasn't that life was miserable. It was just that I, I couldn't stop. So this whole pamphlet thing was just sort of unusual. Like, what, what's, what's going on here? Um, the first step packet was just basically a bunch of lists of what I thought I spent, what I, you know, my drug history, my alcohol history. Was like, well, drugs and alcohol a lot, that type of thing. Um, I wasn't really getting information what it was to be a true alcoholic, And I never really got that until many years later. Um, I graduated from Hazleton, I got my certificate, I went into to halfway, and then I moved down here to Fort Lauderdale, and I started to, to be a, a recovered or excuse me, I started being a recovering alcoholic um, back in those days also. There was a lot of meetings where we talk about our problems, talk about situations in our life. Um, there wasn't much talk about what an alcoholic was. For me, I, I, I really wasn't. I just knew that we went to meetings, we talked about our problems. Um, so I was a meeting maker guy in Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. wasn't sponsoring people. Had a relationship with God that was slowly going away, you know. So I'm in this Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what it is to really be an alcoholic. Um, I just know I'm not supposed to drink anymore, and I'm not supposed to do cocaine anymore, and so I wasn't doing that. Um, I had a sponsor who was trying to get me into some form of step work, but I said, dude, I had the white light experience, and I have a certificate from Hazleton. I don't need that. <laughs> I don't need that stuff, you know. I'll just show up to the meetings. And, and So after 15 years of sodriety, I picked up... Um, <laughs> and it was, because I, I, what I know today, I didn't have the faintest idea what I knew for... You know, for those first 15 years, I was just, I was just this walking zombie in AA, going from meeting to meeting, having a job. And my life was all right, you know, as long as I was able to steal, manipulate, you know, to go on these little sprees I find out today. But um, my alcoholism had gone from alcohol into other sprees. So, but after about 15 years of trying to (laughs) deal with my fun sprees, I, I finally picked up. I had gone to a, a meeting up in Minneapolis, and I was talking to these, and I had gone in there hoping to maybe get some salvation. I would actually gone to Minneapolis to kill myself this time for sure, because this time I was going to do it. And um, I went to an AA meeting. I was hoping to give AA one more try. So I walk in the <clears> meeting, <throat> and I sit down. And if anybody's paying attention, so you might want to listen to this. Um, no one came up to me. As I walked in the door, I sort of got the nod, you know, and I'm sitting in the corner, and I'm just... I'm dying. I'm I'm popping at the seams. I'm an untreated alcoholic. I may as well be drinking, you know, because my life is miserable. And um, I left that meeting determined to die. I was going to kill myself. And luckily, at an intervention, I met somebody, and and, um, I was planning to get some Cristal and kill myself. Went to a hotel room, and I met somebody, and we went out for a a beer. I was going to have coffee. And after 15 years, he said, you sure you don't want a beer? And I said, no, I don't drink. I'll try an Amstel dry roast beer. And I had that beer come up to me. And, I, and I, it, it was like I'd never... You know how they say, once you've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, it ruins your drinking forever? Not true for me. As soon as I picked up that beer, that solution kicked right back in. The, 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 the inner turmoil that was going in, that emptiness, was just gone. I had a spiritual experience that afternoon. And it was just like, oh, I needed this so bad." Um, and I went, um, started drinking right away, you know, after two weeks, two weeks of trying to social drink, and I'm backed up to what I'm basically doing, you know. My parents, I'm living at my parents' house in Minneapolis, they're they're not supposed to know I'm drinking, so I'm sleeping at my car at night, so they don't see me drunk. Um, next thing you know, I'm back down here in Fort Lauderdale, I'm on the six-year run, you know, and my life is just falling apart, I'm seeing things, I'm hearing things, um, I, I want to be just a normal social drinker. I've got a really good job now, and I've got a really nice house, and I'm trying to balance this with my family not catching on that I'm drinking and drugging again. I'm trying to balance this. I had, my boss I had been an AA, but he was a social heavy drinker, so he never really did AA, and he stopped going to AA, so he's fine. Um, I'm going out from the Bistro, I get off work, and I'm going to Bistro Las Solas to have two drinks, a filet mignon, creme boule, run to the bathroom, do a couple of bumps just to get chatty, you know. And uh, my intention was to be home in bed by 8, 39 o'clock to get up and have a normal job. <laughs> see, for 15 years, I didn't know what it was to be an alcoholic. From age 9 to 24, I didn't know what it was to be an alcoholic. You know, I just, that was my life. So when I had my relapse, see, oh, by, the, by the way, in 1984 to when I relapsed, if somebody was to relapse, I would just look at him and say, dude, you just don't drink. You should have called somebody. Put the plug in the jug. Because God you know, gave me that white light experience and I and I abused it. But for, you know, those fifteen years I couldn't I had no comprehension of what multiple relapses were like. I had my white chip and I didn't use for fifteen years, you know? So I wasn't I, I didn't grasp this whole concept of um, inability to stop. I never really tried to stop up until I went to rehab and then God came in and gave me that white light experience so I never really had to struggle with it other than trying to quit but that really didn't count because I really wasn't trying to quit. But when I had this relapse and I'm sitting there trying to uh, hold a job, pay some bills and still have fun, the balance, then I started to realize some of that AA stuff was starting to make sense, you know. Um, my roommate determined somewhere out of the blue that for some reason going five, four or five days without sleeping, not leaving the room and doing massive amounts of cocaine and tequila wasn't really good. So he decided to tell my parents I was relapsing again. And this was uh, 2004. See, I did not ever want that to happen. I wanted to just be like a normal controlled drinker, go out for a couple of drinks and, and have a night. But it never worked for me, I, no matter how I tried to control it. I'm only gonna have beer tonight. After a couple of beers, next thing you know, I'm doing shots. Phenomenon of craving kicks in. I'm definitely suffering from that spiritual malady they talk about. You know, my life was so unmanageable, but that didn't have anything to do with the fact that I was really alcoholic. That's just because I wasn't paying my bills like I was, a, was a, as a as a responsible citizen. You know, the reason that my life was unmanageable was that I couldn't I could not manage decisions based around alcohol. You know, all the evidence I have shows that if I go out to the Bistro Las Olas, I'm not coming home tomorrow. I'm going to be on a little run. But for some reason, my brain keeps saying, but it's going to be different this time. You know, you're going to hang out with some different people tonight. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, I, I'm going to go with this one. You know? Because if I'm not having the booze in me, I'm restless, irritable, discontent. And it's just, this, this sucks. You know, if, if you guys, I'm sure you guys can relate what it's like to be untreated and sober. It sucks. There's no solution. I'm miserable. I'm uncomfortable. My body's itching for more alcohol. I got the the shakes a little bit, you know? So I'm going through the days. Um, I had to have this relapse to understand what it is to be a real alcoholic. I had to have that relapse, I believe, to understand what one has to go through to to try and get sober. Um, The misery of waking up, knowing that my life was going to come to an end, and knowing that if I don't get drunk that day, it's going to come to an end anyways, was building up on a daily basis. So my roommate rats on me. Mom calls up. I go to the office, and the boss says, your mom just called, or your roommate just called, one of the two. We're going to have this intervention on Friday, so get your shit together, because this is going to be not good. Um, Not good. I wasn't ready to get sober. I wasn't happy with my life, Mm -hmm. but it was working. I thought I was living in this complete delusion. You know, it's like you're thinking I'm I'm working to party all weekend. You know, but then it was actually Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend. But my brain had caught me in this this belief that the reason I work is because I just love tequila to the max. I just love blowing all my money on cocaine and. I just love hanging out in bars and being miserable. Um, and I, I fell for that hook, line, and sinker, you know. For six years, that was just, I just thought that was my life. So all of a sudden, we're going to have this, this intervention, right? God, a couple weeks before that, had put this guy in my office to work with me. Turns out he's this big-time AA big-book thumping. It's like, oh, Christ, one of these guys is in my office, you know. And we're talking. I'm, you know, you ever had a... As a recovered alcoholic, you ever talk to an unrecovered alcoholic about what it is to be an alcoholic and how you know, we justify ourselves, and they just sort of go, yeah, okay, that's cool. I'm talking about my sprees and stuff like that, and I'm saying, I don't ever think I was really one of those real alcoholic types, you know, and he's just sort of like looking at me like, yeah, you're, you're just sort of crazy. Because I'm the guy who's showing up every other day, maybe. I would show up to work and uh, go sleep in the, the, the data room for three or four hours. You know, if the boss wasn't in town, I wouldn't show up. Um, I couldn't see where my life was going. You know, the alcoholism had me in such the grips. And once again, I still really didn't want to quit. It was, it was, I was in that catch-22 thing. So he tells me we're going to have intervention. We got this guy in the office who's talking about his wonderful home group day after day after day, and I'm just like, oh, God. So I call my mom, and I say, Mom, guess what? She says, what? I say, I've been drinking and drugging again, and I need help, and I'm going back to AA, and... She says, oh, fantastic, that's great, because we were thinking of having an intervention at the end of the week. I go like, gee, you don't have to anymore. I'm going to go to AA, and hung up the phone and thought, yes, score. You know? My roommate, mm. I'm going to kick him out. You know, this is the guy who's <laughs> going to save my life, right, because he knows what it is to be an alcoholic. He's, tried, he's attempting to save my life, and I'm thinking I'm just going to kick him out of my house. I want him out of my life. How dare you get in between me and my drinking, you know? I turned vicious and evil. Don't touch with this stuff. If any of my friends got in the way between me and my drinking, they weren't my friends anymore. I had this shelf with all these people. You know, it's like, you're not in my life anymore because you're just, don't touch my drinking and drugging. And I couldn't even see that. I can look back at it now and say, wow. But at the time, that just seemed, oh, these up on the shelf. Another one's up on the shelf, you know. Um, so I tell my mom I'm going to read, going back to AA. Everything's going to be fine, great. I don't have to worry about this. And this, I accidentally asked this guy early in the morning if he'd take me to a meeting. You know, I'm trying to make this look really good, set all my ducks in a row. Boss, I'm gonna go to a meeting with him. All of a sudden at the end of the night, he says, "So Mike Chase, you ready to go to the meeting?" I'm going like, "What? Oh crap! I did. Yeah, God." <sighs> Listen, you, for me, tea dance, big thing. Sunday nights always. You know, start drinking about five o'clock. You know, I want to be in bed by ten o'clock, and so I can show up for the Monday morning meeting. You know, ain't never happened. You know, it's. 3, 4 in the morning, I'm stumbling home, if, and um, I got to get up at 8, and uh, drinking sucked. You know, the, the, the consequences sucked, but I, I couldn't see through the delusion. The alcoholism, it was, it was the only thing that would actually work for me, I felt. So, um, when I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, that day, I sat, I, I, my mind went back to that white light experience. It's like, it's going to get amazing. Even though I didn't think I had a real, well, I knew I had a problem, I didn't understand it. And I wasn't ready to quit. But I knew that there was a better way. Um, I, knew, I knew that I should give this a try. So I went into this meeting I sat down. You know, I'm just waiting, white light. White light experience, you know. And uh, I get a lot of phone numbers. I picked up a magic white chip. They said I don't have to drink ever again with this white chip. It's cool. Um, I was told I don't have to drink between meetings if I, even if I want to. Uh, the best way to stay sober is just if you, feel like, if you feel like drinking, call somebody and all these wonderful suggestions. And I'm like, yeah, this is cool. I, they had a seat waiting for me. I'm all excited about this. And I really wasn't, but I was. It was this. And, um, and I didn't understand what it was at the time. Um, I'm leaving this meeting just on, yeah, I'm back. And the phone ring, and it's Mr. Get High, and he just got some really good stuff, and we're going to have a party tonight. And I said, I'm on my way, yes. And I looked up at the sky and said, God, I guess you don't want me to quit yet. This is cool. Because I'd been waiting for that white light experience. I didn't understand what a relapse was because I never experienced a white relapse. I just went into rehab, white light experience, and didn't drink for 15 years. And by the way, for 15 years, my life was just as bad as when I hadn't been sober for most of that time because I had no solution. I had sort of walked God out and... Uh, So here's where my alcoholism really shows up in my life, where I'm actually able to see it. See, being an alcoholic didn't do me any good until I knew what it was to be an alcoholic. You know, drinking a lot, that was, yeah, a lot of people drink a lot, you know. Um, And the people I hung out with, most of them missed that hour. You know, everything, my life, my life was the only normal life. I think it talks about that in the book. And we're talking, and I'm going to this AA just to shut everybody up and I'm showing up late, and I'm leaving early. I know there's something you know, great about AA. I didn't want to abuse it, but I had to keep this lie going that, I'm, yeah, I'm going to AA, I'm going to fix this whole thing, you know? And um, I, that worked for about three months, and I just gave in, you know, and started drinking again. Um, I, I tried controlling for a while. I tried being a normal drinker, you know, just trying to keep it under wraps. If I don't get caught, this is going to be fine, you know? Um, that, that slowly stopped. I ended up in a psych ward in 2005. I had come off about a three-month bender of, of quasi-cocaine and lots of tequila. Ended up in the psych ward. Um, the boss came up to me and said, you need to get help. You know. And once again, I still didn't know what it was to be an alcoholic. I didn't understand that that fact. Just I, I had every intention to just have a couple drinks and get home, you know. So I'm going to the... Uh, In the psych ward, I get released, and I go back to the downtown dry dock. And I pick up my magic white chip. I'm getting all this great advice, you know. And um, I see it as a problem. I'm in the psych ward, you know, for five days, five miserable days, embarrassing days, you know, in this place. And I go back to the dry dock, and it's like, I want to give up drinking. I see what my life was. I see how alcohol is destroying my life. And to my core, I wanted to get <clears throat> sober. I tried to do everything I could. So I'm going to the meetings as, as often as I can. Actually, I'm in AA jail. I wake up, I go to an 8 o'clock meeting. I go to a noon meeting at lunch. I go to a 5.30 meeting. After the 5.30 meeting, I go to an 8.30 meeting. And then I go home, and it's like, ooh, this life is... I'm not drinking. Cool. I wasn't really... I wasn't happy. I was still miserable. I was still restless, irritable, discontent, you know. This went on for... Nine months. Now, in that nine months, we had hurricanes. So if I, have, if I don't drink between meetings and all of a sudden a hurricane blows through and I don't have meetings to go to, I was getting drunk. I'm in this IOP where they're trying to tell me that I need to go to meetings, but they kept having me in the IOP so I couldn't get to meetings, which I thought was sort of interesting. Um, and all we talked about in IOP was, like, why aren't you going to meetings? Why don't you have a sponsor? And, I've, and, I, and I picked this gal's sponsor because she didn't really pushed the steps too much, and I, I didn't really... See, I didn't know what to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I went in there, and everybody thought, oh, he's been in there for 15 years, he knows what he's going to do, you know? And I didn't have the faintest idea what it was to be an alcoholic at heart. I didn't have the faintest idea what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was. I just thought you go to meetings, and life just sort of sucks, and you get on with it and just deal with it. It wasn't until somebody sat down with me. Oh, and I had the sponsor who said... I want you to read the doctor's opinion and then we'll talk about it. And I say, like, okay, cool. So I get home and I go down to the doctor's opinion, you know. Couldn't find it because it's hidden in the Roman numerals, you know. I finally found it. And I read one or two sentences, maybe half a paragraph, and all of a sudden, oh, i got to go do my laundry, you know, and the book gets closed and I'm off doing stuff, you know. I'm an untreated alcoholic. I don't know what to do. And I'm sort of in this this area of not knowing how to save my life. I'm having relapses, picking up 30-day, 60-day chips, you know, even though I've relapsed. And then somebody once told me, he said, if you, you know, if you relapse and nobody finds out, it's still a relapse and you have to pick up a white chip. That was sort of interesting news for me. Um, I'm finally getting this grand sponsor, this new sponsor, this grand sponsor. He comes up and he looks at me right in the eye. I walk this far away from my face and he looks at me and says, so Mike Chase, that honesty thing sucks for you, doesn't it? Whoa, he smells it. So I'm picking up white chips. I've become this pariah in the home group. I'm the guy always picking up white chips every week. Um, I really want to quit. So I'm going to all of these meetings, but there's hurricanes, so I'm missing meetings, so I'm drinking. Um, I've got this IOP that's just like, they never—they caught me once. Um, actually, it was graduation night. I didn't show up, so she called me in. I have been drinking that night. Um, I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to pick up white chips. I didn't want to be that person that nobody wanted to do anything with. I wanted, to get, I wanted to get on with my life. And I'm on my last run. Great run. Lots of stuff, lots of handles of tequila, and the phone rings out of the blue. It's like, whoa. And I picked it up. Never pick up a phone on the run. And I answer the phone, and it's one of my sponsee brothers. And we're talking, and he can tell I'm, I'm really drunk and drunk. I'm trying denying I'm not. I said I got some new psych meds, you know. It's just they're unbalanced. And next thing you know, my sponsor's on the phone and my grand sponsor's on the phone. And I'm thinking the SWAT team from AA was going to show up at any second now. <laughs> like, they're coming, you know. It's like, chug, get it. And they'll get all over with, lock the doors, you know. And, I'm, and it hit me. I am going to drink myself to death and there's not a goddamn thing I can do about it. I want to be normal. I don't want to drink, you know. And the stuff that they've been selling me in the rooms up to this point wasn't working for me. And it was actually starting to send me closer to death, you know. Don't drink between me. Well, I, if I could do that, I wouldn't be here. You know, all the stuff that we hear today that doesn't, that, you know, it's great if you're not an alcoholic. That stuff works great. But if you're an untreated alcoholic, for me, that stuff didn't work. I'm that guy on, on page 27 we talk about. And for me, my first step was knowing that there's not a damn thing I can do about it. You've tried everything, you know. You've gone to this meeting and that meeting and speaker meetings and, and I'm just going to drink myself to death, you know. At that point in time, it wasn't like, well, I'm doing this for fun. It's like you have no choice. And I didn't know where that information came from. Maybe I picked up something in a meeting or something like that. But I just knew at that moment that, that I was done, you know. There's nothing you can do about it. Just give up. You're just going to die, you know. I ended up going that night. The next Monday, I went to my advanced IOP and um, talked about my relapse. And they're like, yeah, like (laughs) we knew. Um, And I was scared because I knew I was going to get drunk. I knew I was going to end up getting kicked out of IOP. I knew I was going to lose my job. I knew... And I went to the downtown dry dock two days later and I raised my hand. Actually, we were in the middle of the meeting, just like imagine if you just stood up and said, Hey, I don't know what the heck's going on here. I cannot stop drinking. You tell me that drunk between meetings. And I just made this big scene, you know, and finally, this little guy in the back says, Mike Chase, I'll bring you through the book. And I was like, The book? It's like, Not the book. God, not the book. (laughs) Not the book. You know, I had gotten a book in 84 and it was like filled with all these cute little, you're so nice, I'm glad we met you. you know, like, just like a high school. <laughs> you got this, right? Like, oh. But I knew at that moment I was going to drink myself to death and there wasn't a dang thing I could do about it. I didn't understand why. And I didn't care why. I just knew that, you know. I, I, and that little guy with little wiggly fingers, little short guy, He sat down and we just started reading the book together, you know. He didn't tell me, "Oh, go read the first 164 pages, you know," and then we'll talk about it, because I would have read the first first pages and never called him back. We went over to his house and we started on page zero, you know. And there's 58 pages that we read together, and whatever the book told us to do, we did it. And by the time I got to page 58, I knew what it was to be an alcoholic. I knew about the phenomenon on a craving. I knew about the mental obsession and where that comes from. I knew about the spiritual malady. I knew all that stuff for the first time in my life. And I'm down. On my, I'm actually. You know, I, I'm sure there's some guys out there like me. I, I want you to pray in the morning. I say, like, yeah, I'm doing that, but I wasn't. You know, I'm, I'm. Oh, I pray all the time, but I wasn't. You know, this guy. The first time we met, he's got me down on my knees, which is kind of weird. And we're meditating and praying, you know. And we're reading the book together, and something's shifting. It wasn't the white light experience, which was really a rush. But it, like I had in 84, it was just, I felt different. Something was changing in my life. I had hope. You know, if I had to sit through another meeting here and Bob talk about his lawnmower or Mary and her divorce, or it was, I was going to kill myself because that stuff was not, I was bored in AA, you know. But we're reading the book together. We're talking. The stuff that, you know, page 27. I can start wrapping up a little bit with this thing. You know, I'm on page 27, and this was so me. 25. <laughs> Page 24. The great fact that for most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drink. <gasps> wow. You know, if I, I I never knew that. I didn't know what that meant. I saw this in paper, and we underlined and highlighted and said, our so-called willpower comes practically non-existent, you know. I'm thinking I'm like this hopeless, washed up, never gonna get sober guy in this room of people who are happy, joyful, and free, and I'm not getting it, time after time, you know. And I'm finding here that all the intention I had as an untreated alcoholic wasn't going to get me through the week without me be picking up, you know. God gave me some grace and I blew it and stuff like that. But the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice and drink. Our so-called will part becomes practically non-existent. That made sense to me. I was unable at certain times to bring into my consciousness with sufficient force the memory and suffering and humilities of even a week or a month ago. I was without defense against the first drink. Without even knowing it, that was my life, you know, since nine to 24. And then when I had one on my six year run, (coughs) I didn't know that stuff. But next thing, next thing, I'm learning this stuff, you know. God's slowly percolating back into my life, you know. I start finding this purpose. I'm I'm being told that, you know, when this book is done in 30 days or so, you're going to sit down and hopefully start working with somebody else. And it's like, um,. I thought you have to like wait a year, and he's like, "No, we're going to get you into the action right away." You know, I went 15 years and never sponsored anybody. You know, I'm am not proud of that. I'm ashamed of that. You know, but AA was different back in the 80s. You know, at least in the meetings I was going to. You know, you didn't. There wasn't. That. As long as you showed up and chaired and made coffee and stuff like that, that was okay for me. Um, today, I know what it is to be an alcoholic. You know, I've got this allergic reaction that when alcohol I put into it, you know, and it's not like the, like um, Claritin's not, it's not that type of allergy. When I put it into me, you know, my body metabolizes it differently and my little brain goes, get me more of that shit. I don't care. And more. More. It's like, well, I got to get to work in the morning. I don't care. Get more. You know, just like when I, if I want to like pause my heart right now, I can't, you know, there, I just, there's no control I believe that the, the allergic reaction triggers my brain in such a way that it just says, get more, get more, get more. You know, I wake up in the morning, and my body says, oh, you need protein and carbohydrates, right? I'm not excited. So my brain says, get pancakes and orange juice. I'm like, ooh, I get out of bed, I get that stuff, you know? <laughs> the brain's this tricky little thing. It's cunning, baffling, powerful, you know? It's not this evil spirit out there that's trying to kill me with alcoholism. It? It's this me- uh, biological chemical reaction that my body has for alcohol. And the more alcohol I consume, right, the more times my brain remembers that, my brain sort of gets somehow rewired. So the only thing worthwhile in living is to get more of that. My brain's just sort of like, i got to get more, get me more. You know, back there waiting. I'm living in this spiritual malady, right? Fifteen years of misery. No wonder I needed that drink, you know? Six years of relapse, it was misery. This way of life I have is so amazing because I understand what it was that was causing me the misery in the first place, what my problem was, and now I've got this solution. So next week we're going to start talking about what, how I came to believe that this was actually going to work. You know, I remember seeing people in the room being happy and, and joyful. I, I, I really never fit that mold. I wasn't comfortable with that. But going through the book, you know, the first 58 pages allowed me to experience a lot of things. and um, I'm just glad I know what it is to be an alcoholic finally. You know, if, if you guys are going through the rooms and you think you're an alcoholic, if you've had lots of DWIs, or if you're an alcoholic because you've gotten divorced eight times, or you know, you're you homeless and stuff like that, that's, that's possibly alcoholic stuff. But I know a lot of non-alcoholics who are a lot messed up than me. You know, um, It wasn't until I sat down with an alcoholic who was recovered who helped me to understand what it was, <laughs> an unrecovered alcoholic, that my life changed um, Today, my life is amazing. I, I actually work with people all the time. I'm sponsoring people. I have this uh, I have this passion to try and help people like me. Because mm-hmm. if, if, if that little short guy with the book hadn't stood, stopped me in my temper tantrum, and he'd basically say, shut up, I'll help you. Um, if he hadn't stopped me, I'd still probably be relapsing. I'd be struggling in the rooms of Contemporary Alcoholics Anonymous. I would be um, an acceptable casualty because I wasn't willing or I wasn't you know, ready at the time, but I was I just didn't have the information necessary for that so I hope you guys uh, realize that I'm a real alcoholic and that uh, we're going to travel this book together and find some solution. Thanks Thank you uh, Mike. Uh, appreciate that you'll be here for what, the next 11 weeks eleven weeks I can do, I can do math I' like math that is hard. Enough.